Get your Bibles open to Exodus chapter number 12. We're going to be going through a lot of the book of Exodus, but we're going to end up focusing uh, right on Exodus 12. But if you want to follow along with me, you can join me in Exodus chapter number 5 to begin with. But of course, we are uh, continuing our study through the Bible this year. And we spent a lot of time in, in Genesis. Uh, you know, we're in our, I think this is the 10th Sunday of the year. And so we spent nine Sundays in Genesis. And now we're coming to Exodus and we are going to begin to fly. Uh, we're going to go through a lot of stuff and a lot of history and a lot of years in very broad strokes and focus on some pretty, uh, some pretty important things. And we may skip some stories you think we should uh, focus on. Uh, I'm probably going to skip some stories I think we should focus on, but we're going to skip a lot of stories, but we're going to begin to fly. And so today, uh, in the book of Exodus, what we're going to look at is we're going to look at the clearest picture of the gospel that we see in the Old Testament. The clearest picture of God's plan to redeem mankind that we see anywhere in the Old Testament. Now, to remember where we were last week, we looked at the life of Joseph, and we we flew through Joseph's life. We covered, you know, several chapters uh, through his story, and we saw how he was his dad's favorite. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was uh, lied upon by his master's wife and thrown into prison, and he was forgotten in prison. But eventually, God brought him to a place where he was the, uh, the prime minister over all of Egypt. He was the most powerful man in Egypt over everyone except Pharaoh and how God used him to save Israel from this famine, this drought that had, that had uh, hit the land. And so the famine gets so bad that, it, that Canaan, the Israelites in Canaan, they need food. So they come down to Egypt and they come to Joseph, not knowing it's Joseph, it's his brothers who sold him. And it's an incredible story of, of how God forgives and how God sustains. But that incredible story ends in chapter 50 and God had used Joseph to preserve the line of the uh, Messiah for himself. And then we come to the book of Exodus. And in Exodus, Joseph's dead. Jacob's dead. All of his brothers are dead. The Pharaoh that Jacob, that Joseph served, that respected Joseph so much and that loved Joseph's family so much and gave him the land of Goshen, he's dead and there's a new pharaoh in charge, and he doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't remember Joseph. He doesn't remember why these Jews are living in Goshen. And Goshen was the best land in Egypt. Goshen was on the, the uh, Red Sea River Delta, and the, the Nile River would go through there, and so it would always flood and then recede throughout the year, and the, the ground was very fertile. It was the best land in Egypt. And he looks around and is like, why are all these 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 aliens, these illegal aliens, living in the best land that we have, and they outnumber us. If we ever get invaded and they decide to, you know, fight for the other side, then they're going to overthrow us. And so he doesn't know who Joseph is, doesn't know why they're there. And he, this Pharaoh, is the most evil person we see in Scripture up to this point. And he decides he has to do something about this, this Israelite nation living inside of his borders. So he enslaves them. He says, we're going to make them our slaves. We're going to make them serve us. And so the nation of Israel has now become a nation of slaves to the Egyptians. But they're still thriving. 
They're still growing in numbers. That's, that was God's promise to them. God said, I'm going to make you a mighty nation. I'm going to increase your number. So their numbers are still growing and still increasing. So this Pharaoh comes up with the idea that he's going to, whenever the Hebrew women are in labor giving birth, then he'll tell the Egyptian handmaids that when the child is born, if it's a girl, fine. If it's a boy, kill it. Now, a couple Egyptian handmaids refuse to obey him, and the numbers continue to grow. But So then he, he decides, okay, we're going to take it a different route. And so he tells his soldiers, I want you to go throughout the camp of the Israelites, and I want you to find any child, any baby that is born a male baby, and I want you to kill it. So hundreds of maybe even thousands of Israelite children are murdered by this evil, wicked man. They're suffering incredibly. And no one likes to suffer. Anybody here like to suffer? No. No one likes to suffer. Whether it's, it's, it's suffering, you know, because of something we've done or suffering because someone else is doing to us, nobody likes to suffer. As a matter of fact, we go out of our way to avoid suffering. Whether it's self-inflicted or someone else is inflicting it on us, nobody likes to suffer. But suffering is a part of life. Because of sin, every single one of us will have to suffer from some time or another. Some of you are suffering right now. Some of you maybe just came out of suffering. Some of you, everything's going well, but you're about to enter into a time of suffering and you don't know it yet. Suffering is a part of life because of sin. Our sin causes us to suffer, and other people's sin causes us to suffer. See, Israel, they're suffering because of Pharaoh's sin, because of his evil, because of his wickedness. Now, the good news is, we see in the book of Exodus, we see that Jesus has a plan to deal with our suffering and to deal with our sin, and he puts it into action in the book of Exodus. And it's seen in an event that we know as the Passover which is seen in Exodus chapter number 12. But before we get there, I want to catch us up on the story. Again, in Exodus 1, an evil Pharaoh has taken the throne. He's enslaved the nation of Israel. He's seen the size of the nation of Israel, and so he, he enslaves them and treats them horribly. This Pharaoh doesn't view God's people as a blessing like the Pharaoh that Joseph served did. See, the Pharaoh that Joseph served, he saw the nation of Israel as a blessing, as a means of salvation. That's why God blessed him, because he blessed them. But now, this new Pharaoh comes on the scene, and he doesn't like them, he doesn't understand them. So he, he enslaves them, and he orders them to be killed. But through an incredible story, a miracle story, one particular Hebrew baby boy is spared. His name is Moses. His mother, because she's a good mother... When he's born, she hides him away, keeps him tucked away for three months. But at three months, it's, it's hard to hide a, a baby. You know, I'm surprised she kept him, you know, hidden for a week because they never shut up uh, and just cry all the time. But so he can't, she can't hide this baby anymore, but she doesn't want to turn him over and watch him, watch him be killed and have him thrown in the Nile. So she, she takes steps out on faith and has an incredible act of faith. And she builds a little, little basket, little ark. And she fills it with straw and stuff and seals it up. And she puts baby Moses in there and by faith sends Moses down the river, trusting that God's going to take care of him. Well, Moses floats into the area where Pharaoh's daughter is bathing. They hear this baby crying. 
They go, they find this little ark and they, this little basket, and they take it off and they look and they see a baby in there. And they know it's a Hebrew baby. She says, this is one of the Hebrew children. Now, her daddy has ordered that these children be killed. These male children are supposed to die. And so she sees this male Hebrew child that her dad has ordered to be killed, but she has compassion on him. And she says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make him, I'm going to adopt him into my own family. And, and an incredible twist on in the story that I know God planned out, there's no coincidences. Moses' sister has been following along the whole way. And she runs up and says, hey, I just happen to know a wet nurse that can nurse this child and, you know, keep him until he's weaned. And I, I, it's amazing. I just have one right here. And so Moses is actually weaned or he's nursed and raised in his mother's home for the first couple years of his life. And then he's weaned and he's sent to Pharaoh's house and he's adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And the entire time, he knows that he's a Hebrew. I'm sure as his mother was nursing him when he was a small child and the toddler that she's telling him about their people. Now, I mean, really, who, who remembers something when they were three years old? No, you don't. <laughs> so, you know, we don't really have these clear memories of things when we're really that young, but she just keeps talking to him. And, and this time, they usually didn't get weaned until sometimes they were four or five. So he, she could have had him for several years, and she's just telling him about their people. And so Moses, he grows up in Pharaoh's house, but he knows he's not an Egyptian. And I really, because of what happens later in the story, I don't think Pharaoh really liked him. Uh, but his daughter loved him, so he's raised by Pharaoh's daughter in Pharaoh's home. He's taught like an Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. You know, he looks like an Egyptian. He knows their culture, their customs, but he knows he's not one of them. He knows that his people are enslaved. And one day he's out and he's looking at, at his people and kind of just seeing how, what they're going through, and he sees an Egyptian guard mistreating a Hebrew slave, and he gets angry, and he says, God put me here to do something about this. So he takes matters in his own hands, and he kills this Egyptian guard, hides him in the sand, thinks he got away with it, no big deal. Next day, he's out walking around, and he sees two Hebrew slaves fighting, and he kind of breaks them and says, why are y'all fighting? You know, you're, you're, you're the, your family, you're the same people. Why are you fighting? And they kind of look at him and say, what, are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? So he thinks he got away with it, but now it's known. So he's kind of panicking, and it, cut, it gets word to him that Pharaoh knows what he did, and Pharaoh has decided that he has to die. Now, he's 40 years old at this time, and he's in Egypt. He's a Hebrew, but he was raised in Pharaoh's house, but Pharaoh doesn't like him. Pharaoh said, now that you've killed an Egyptian guard, it's time for you to die. So he flees to the, what's called the land of Midian, across the desert. He meets his father-in-law and his wife. He gets married. He becomes a shepherd. And he spends 40 years in the desert being a shepherd, shepherding sheep and goat, and really just forgetting about anything that had happened to him. And then, one day, he meets God. He's walking through the desert. He sees a bush burning, which was not a, 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 you know, an uncommon event in this, in this area. Uh, how many of y'all ever, you know, you bailed hay and stuck it in barns? Anybody, a real man, ever bale hay? Am I the only one that actually bailed hay? Danny did. I know Danny did. You ever have a barn of hay just burst in the flames? You never did? My neighbors did, and I loaded it. I don't know if it was my fault or not. 
But hay and straw, when you bundle it, 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 it puts off heat. And if you put too much of it together, too tightly packed, it, they put off so much heat, they can just burst into flames. And that would happen in the desert. You know, the, these trees were just so dry and so arid that sometimes they would just burst into flames, but they would burn out. But Moses sees this tree, this bush burning, and it's not burning out. And so he thinks, well, that's weird. I got to go see what's going on there. And as he approaches this bush, God tells him, says, Moses, be careful before you come here. You know, take off your shoes. The place you're entering is holy ground. I don't believe this was Moses' first encounter with God. Because if I'm walking through the desert and I see a bush burning and I go to look at the bush and the bush talks to me, I'm not going any closer. I'm running away. But he says, this is, you know, I am God, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. And so Moses, he talks to God and God says, Moses, I'm going to use you to free the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. And Moses says, I tried that before, God, it didn't work. He says, but I've got you where I need you now. Everyone that had sought you in Egypt is dead and now you can go back. There's a new Pharaoh in town. Now this Pharaoh is a Pharaoh that Moses grew up with. It was his adopted brother, nephew, cousin, something. He was related to this guy. He knew this, kid, kid, this guy from his childhood. So he goes, there's a new Pharaoh on the throne. I need you to go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. I want you to lead them out of captivity. And Moses comes up with every excuse in the book why he can. And, and he, understandable, he's looking at his life and he says, God, I'm too old. I'm 80 years old now. You know, I could have done it when I was 40 years old and, you know, I was in the palace. I had, maybe had some influence with Pharaoh and maybe had some sway where I could maybe convince him. But Lord, now, you know, I'm, I'm a fugitive from Egypt. I'm, I'm too old to do it. And, you know, everybody hates me. There's, there's, the people in Israel don't even like me. He even says they're not going to believe me because they know what I've done. How can I be used of you? And God says, don't worry, I'm going I'm to use you. And he says, well, God, I, I, don't, I don't speak too good. And he, God says, don't worry, I'm going to speak for you. And finally, God gets frustrated and said, look, I'm going to send Aaron to help you. I just need you to hush up and do what I've asked you to do. So Moses, after some, some you know, debating with God, he agrees and he goes to Egypt. Because God tells him, tells him, you know, if Moses, it's not about you, it's about me. I'm going to work through you to accomplish this for my glory not for yours. Now, what this tells us real quick, this has nothing to do with the message we're going to get to this. This is why we're flying through things, but I want to hit some of these points real good. No matter what your past is, no matter where you came from or what you've done, God is still able to use you for his glory. God is still able to use you to build his kingdom. All we have to do is be willing to step up and be used by God. So Moses steps up, he goes to Egypt, and he is being used by God for his, God's honor and glory. So Moses gets to Egypt, and he, he has a simple message for Pharaoh, and it's found in, in Exodus chapter number 5, verse number 1. And afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. I don't know about y'all, but whenever I read that, I always picture Charleston Heston. Am I the only one that Moses is like, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go? Uh, I don't know if he sung it, but he goes to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, God has sent me here to tell you to let his people go. But notice why God wants them let go. 
let my people go, and they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. See, God didn't want to just free his children from slavery. He wanted, them to, he wanted to free them to something. He wanted to free them from slavery and bring them to a place of worship. You know, freedom should always cause us to worship God. Cause of the freedom we've received from freedom from our sin, freedom from death in the grave, freedom to, to live our life in Christ and have the joy. Because of the freedom that God has given us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it should lead us to worship God. You know, God desires not just to free us from something, He desires to free us to someone. You know, God's answer for all the brokenness that we're dealing with all the pain, all the suffering, all the disappointment, all the sin, God's answer for all of it is for us to worship him. You know, a lot of people, unfortunately, have reduced Christianity to a get-out-of-hell-free card. But it's so much more than that. We don't just find salvation from hell and the grave and things that have enslaved us. We find a Savior that desires to have a relationship with us. Now, of course, chapter 5, Moses goes to Pharaoh, says, Pharaoh, God sent me here to tell you to let the Israelite people go. And Pharaoh, of course, says, no, I won't do it. And so then Moses goes to the Israelites. He hasn't been to them yet. Now he goes to the Israelites. Look over in chapter 6, <clears throat> starting in verse number 6. Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord... And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will rid you of their bondage. And I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgment. And I will take you to me for a people. And I will be to you a God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will... And I will bring you into the land concerning the which I did swear to give to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. And I will give it to you for a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses, of course, he, he goes to, to the Israelites and God says, hey, tell them I, I remember them. I didn't forget about them. I'm the God of Abraham. I remember what I promised them. And I'm going to be their God. I'm going to deliver them out of Egypt. I'm going to give them you know, prosperity when I take them out. I'm going to take them to the land I promised Abraham. I'm going to be their God. It's going to be great. Tell them this. And that's what Abraham tell, uh, Moses tells them. But look at verse number 9. And Moses spake so, spoke so unto the children of Israel, but they hearkened not unto Moses for anguish of spirit and for cruel bondage. God sends Moses to the nation of Israel to let them know that he hasn't forgotten about them. That he's going to rescue them. That he's going to free them from bondage and bless them like he promised and give them the land that he swore to Abraham. But they won't listen. The years of slavery, the years of brokenness and pain have caused them to lose faith in God have caused them to lose faith and trust in his love. And, you know, sadly, that's an easy thing to do. You know, we can look at him and think, well, how can they be like that? How could they, how could they think that? Because they've been enslaved for 400 years, and God's been quiet. You think they've stopped praying? You know, you think they didn't pray for those 400 years? God help us, God help us, God help us, and God just seemed to not care? God seemed to ignore them? No, he wasn't. 
we know he was working it out in his plan, in his timetable, in his will, for his glory and for the redemption of man. But, you know, you're a slave for a couple hundred years. You don't believe that. You think God's forgotten about me. God doesn't care about me. God's rejected me. You know, it seems like life is beating you down and everything is against you. It's, it's hard to see God. You know, last year was a hard year for every, a lot of people. Still a hard year. I mean, 2021 ain't been a, a you know, a roll in the hay. It's been, it's been pretty rough. Now the new strand of the virus is hitting Southwest Virginia and new stuff's coming out. And it's just, you know, 2021 doesn't look to be the, you know, the, the banner year we were all hoping for. But it's been a hard year, and it's easy to say, I guess God doesn't care. You know, I'll be honest with you, I was there last year. When the coronavirus first hit, and everything shut down, and, you know, things were happening, I, I just, I knew, I said, man, God is going to work this out in an incredible way. We're going to look back in a few months and just see God explode on the scene, and revival is going to hit, and man, things are going to change, and it's going to be awesome. But then, you know, May came, and June, and... July and August, September, October, November, December, January, February. We're back in March now. We're a year later. And you're like, really? Why are you still doing this? Now, am I saying, well, God's given up and God's not going to do it? No, God's going to, I believe whatever, whenever this is all said and done, God's going to do something great. But here's the thing. God doesn't work on our timetable. God doesn't work the way we think he should sometimes or when we think he should sometimes. So our job is just to trust God and say, God, I don't like what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing. To me, it didn't make any sense. But you know what? I'm not God. You're God. You know what's going to happen. You know why you're doing it. And so we just have to trust him. But the Israelites, they'd gotten beaten down by all years of seeming like God wasn't there. Instead of drawing closer to him, they were denying that he was even working in their life. Instead of trusting his promises, they were ignoring him, ignoring them, because they figured they didn't have anything to do with their situation. I mean, I, I can imagine how they felt this way. I mean, it, Moses comes to him and says, hey, remember the, how, what God told Abraham? How he's going to bless his children and how he's going to make them a mighty nation. How he's going to give them a land that flows with milk and honey. And he's going to, he's here to, he sent me here to lead you to that land. And they think, man, that's a great promise he gave to Abraham. But my son's still dead. Pharaoh still killed my baby boy. What's that got to do with me? How's that help me right now? Yeah, great. We're going to have a land. But I still don't have my child. I still don't have my family. I still have lost too much. But look how God starts his message to the hurting nation. He says, I am the Lord. And of course, the word Lord there is in all caps. He is giving them his name. He says, I am the one that has always been. I'm the one that always will be. I'm the one that created you and sustains you and controls everything. And I am your God. I am am your heavenly father. That's all we need right there. You know, God is bigger and stronger than anything that's trying to destroy us. And God says, you are mine and I am yours. Look at verse seven again. <clears throat> and I will take you to me for a people and I will be to you a God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your, your God, 
which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptian. God desperately wants us to know him. God wants us to have a relationship. He is pursuing a fellowship relationship with us. And look at verse 8. And I will bring you into the land concerning the which I did swear to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give you for an heritage. I am the Lord. You know, in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham a land that his, his children, his grandchildren, great-grandchildren, his nation could prosper on. And he is going to give it to the nation of Israel. And that land is in Egypt. God always keeps his promises to us. If God gives us a promise in his word, we can trust that God's going to keep his promise. Now, it may not be on our timetable. It may not be the way we expect it, but he always keeps his word. If our problems get in the way of his promises, then he's going to remove our problems to keep his promise. We don't have an inactive, absent God. We don't have a God that is unable or afraid to get involved in our lives. We serve a God that loves us, that wants us to know him, that wants to bless us and keep his word to us. So God, after Moses goes to Pharaoh and after Moses goes to Israel, God decides to prove his power to Pharaoh and prove his love and protection to Israel. So he sends nine plagues to punish the nation of Israel for how they treated God's people. Because you remember what God told Abraham? I'm going to bless those that bless you, but I'm going to curse those that curse you. So the nine plagues that God sends to the nation of Egypt were punishment from God for how they treated God's people. And they're, they're incredible plagues. And we, again, we could spend a couple days talking about these plagues and how they you know, attack each God. We're not going to do that. We don't got time for that. We're flying here. But I'm going to tell you the plagues. He turns the Nile River into blood. He sends frogs everywhere. How many of y'all like frogs? A couple frog lovers. How many of y'all like frogs, you know, in the bathroom, in the bed, in the shower, everywhere? Nobody, right? Well, nobody likes frogs that much. So he sends frogs there. He invades the nation with gnats. Then he sends flies. Then he kills all the livestock. Then boils break out on everyone. Then hail comes and destroys the crops. And then locusts come and eat what the crops didn't, what the, the what crops were left. And then three days of darkness over all the land. Then God says he's going to send the final plague, the death of the firstborn. But he gives Israel a plan to save themselves from this plague. They would have to find a perfect lamb to sacrifice in their place for the punishment of sin. Look what God says in Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse number 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord, and the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be with you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Now, what's interesting about this, they've just, you know, Egypt has just endured nine plagues, but Israel has been protected from every single one of them. They didn't have gnats, they didn't have flies, they didn't have frogs. 
They didn't have their crops destroyed. They didn't have their blood, water turned to blood. They were protected from every single plague without doing anything. God didn't tell them, hey, you got to do this and I'll protect you. God just, because they are his people and because he loved them, protected them. But now he says this last plague, it's not just on the Egyptians. It's on sin. And so if you want to be spared from the punishment of sin, there's something you have to do. They had to find a substitutionary sacrifice. And earlier on in the chapter, he tells them, he goes, you've got to find a, a lamb without spot or blemish. You have to set it aside for 14 days to make sure it's not sick or has anything wrong with it. Then you have to kill that lamb. You have to slice the, the lamb's throat and let the blood pour out. And you have to take the blood and put it on your doorposts. And then you have to roast the lamb and eat the lamb. And when the, the angel comes through to send judgment upon man for sin, when he sees the blood of the lamb, he'll pass over you and you won't be judged for sin. See, they had to do this because God tells us that the punishment for sin is death. He told Adam and Eve, you eat of that fruit, and it wasn't the fruit. You sin against me, and you're going to have to die. The final plague is God sending his righteous judgment for sin on the land of Egypt, and Israel is just as guilty of sin as the Egyptians are. Death is coming for all of us, because we have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We all deserve God's wrath and judgment because he is holy and we are sinners. The Lamb in Exodus chapter 12, it only gave temporary salvation. It covered their sin for a while so that when the death angel saw the blood, he didn't see their sin, he saw that blood, and he passed over. But they had to do this every year. This became a ritual that they had to do every single year. The Passover, the Day of Atonement, they would bring a lamb, a spotless lamb, to the temple or to the tabernacle, and that lamb would symbolically have their sins placed on it, and it would be killed, and the blood would be put on the mercy seat for them. And God, when he looked down on them, he didn't see their sin, he saw the blood of the lamb, but it was temporary. They had to do it every single year. But when Jesus came, John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He doesn't cover it. He doesn't hide it from God. He removes it from our account completely. You know, God tells Israel that when he sees the blood, he's going to pass over them and not send judgment. Not when he saw how good they were. He didn't say, when I see your church attendance, I'll pass over. He didn't say, when I see how moral you are, I'm going to pass over. When I see your baptism, I'm going to pass over. He had to see the blood applied to their door. The blood of Jesus is the only thing that will wash away our sins. It is the only thing that brings us salvation. Nothing else is going to do it. No good deeds, no tithing of record, nothing else will save you and take away your sins and save you from sin and the grave except the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, continuing the story, at midnight, God sends the death angel through. And the angel comes to the land of Egypt, and every house 
that doesn't have the blood, he touches. The firstborn of every house, the firstborn animal, the firstborn child is killed. The next morning, everybody wakes up and every Egyptian has had death visit their house. Their children are dead. Their grandchildren are dead. Their loved ones are dead. They're heartbroken. Pharaoh's son is dead. No house was spared. So Pharaoh, he's finally broken, brings Moses in and says, I'm done. Take what you want to take. Just get out. So Moses gathers the people of Israel and they leave Egypt free and burdened down with the riches of Egypt. Now this morning, there's a lot we can get into in that whole story. More we can look forward to. But this morning, I want to show you what God is accomplishing through the Passover. First thing we see is God rescues us from slavery to freedom. The Israelites, they were well aware of their physical bondage. They knew they were slaves. It was part of their life. It was part of their identity. But they were unaware of a deeper slavery they had that God would deal with through the Messiah. And that was the slavery of sin. You know, Israel, they thought their greatest problem was the Egyptians. But God knew that their greatest problem was their hearts. You know, Israel, they're told by God, you're going to spend 40 days in the wilderness coming to Mount Sinai, worshiping God, and God's going to spend 40 days with them, and they're going to worship him. But because of the sin in their heart, that 40 days turned into 40 years. It took 40 years. It took an entire generation to free them from the slavery of idolatry. You know, none of us that are here this morning are watching. None of us are, are slaves in the literal sense, but we are slaves to some form of, of idolatry. We are slaves to something that controls us, something that is our master. You know, the Bible says in 2 Peter 2, it says, while they promised them liberty, they themselves are servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. For if after they had escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. See, whatever controls you besides God, you are a slave to that. You don't have control over it, it controls you. You know that, that website you can't stop visiting? That's your master. Maybe that video game, you can't stop playing and it's ruining your life and you're getting in trouble with your, your parents and maybe, maybe it's not just kids, maybe you're an adult male or woman who's getting in trouble with her spouse or his spouse because you won't stop playing video games. Whatever it is, that website you won't stop going to, that person that you just can't stop talking to, that shopping that you can't stop doing because, man, shopping just makes me feel good. I'm not looking at you, April. <laughs> that drink you can't stop having, that pill you can't stop taking, that friend you can't stop dealing with, that you know is destroying you, but you just, i got to have it. Those are your masters. And idols, no matter how good they may seem, they make terrible masters. They destroy our lives. They steal our joy. God wants to free us from slavery. He wants to free us through his word and his spirit. You know, before Cain killed Abel, you know, God came to him said, Cain, I see the road you're going down. 
He says, sin is crouching at the door, ready to destroy you. But he said, Cain, you have to control that desire. You have to control that sin instead of letting it control you. Of course, he didn't listen. He kills his brother and he's cast out by God. You know, God isn't trying to move us from being bad to being good. He isn't trying to move us from being sinful to being sinless. He is taking dead people and making them alive. He is taking sinful people and making them righteous. He's taking people from the enemy and he's bringing them into the family of God. He is taking us from slavery to freedom. You know, Galatians 5.1 says, For freedom, Christ has freed us. Stand fast, therefore, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. See, we don't have the freedom that God has given us to do whatever we want. God has given us the freedom to do whatever he wants. For his will and his glory and his kingdom, not ours. See, Jesus, he saves us from sin and he frees us to joyfully serve him and others. But there's a second thing God does for us. God rescues us from despair to hope. You know, despair is the complete loss of hope. And Israel had no hope. They weren't going to free themselves. They were a, a nation of slaves. Now, when they came to Egypt, they were a mighty people. Probably had some good warriors there, but they've been beaten down for over 400 years. They're just a group of slaves. They, they can't do anything. They can't free themselves. They can't defeat their masters. They have no hope at all. They are completely despairing, but God gave them hope. You know, like the Israelites, our pain and our suffering can make us feel like God's forgotten about us and God's abandoned us. You know, we look at our pain and you know, think God doesn't care, so what do I have to hope in? There are a lot of people suffering right now. They feel forgotten. They feel alone. They feel hopeless. But you're not alone and your suffering is not meaningless. See, God is using it to free you and to give you hope. God wants to bless us so we can bless others. You know why he wanted to free the nation of Israel and take them to a, a land that he had promised them and bless them in incredible ways? So that a thousand years later, he could be born of a virgin in the nation of Israel he could live a perfect life as Jesus Christ. He could die on the cross for my sins and your sins. He could shed his blood and be buried and three days later rise again to redeem us to God the Father. God wanted to bless them so that he, they could bless us. And that's why God wants to bless you too. God blesses us so he can bless other people. He wants to use you to bring the gospel to those who are still in slavery. You know, even in your suffering. People need to know that there's a God that loves them and died for them. Even in your slavery, people need to hear about how God has, sent them, has come to save them. Our hope isn't in this world. It's in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It is in the Holy Spirit that is living inside of us. Because we have hope, our suffering isn't in vain. You know, it may, it may seem meaningless but God has a purpose for it in your life. And that gives us hope. You know, we don't just get protection from hell and the grave when we get saved. 
we get a relationship with a person, with God the Father. We get more than a rescue, we get freedom. We didn't just get salvation, we get a Savior. He is more than a moral standard to live up to. He is a person to behold, a Savior to embrace, and a God that will never leave you or forsake you. There is freedom and hope in Jesus Christ. You know, the Passover lamb, it's more than just a sign of our salvation. It's our sustenance. You know, in the Passover story, God told Israel, said, you're going to kill the lamb, you're going to gather the blood, and you're going to apply the blood to the doorposts. But that wasn't all they had to do. Then he said, you're going to roast the lamb. And I find it interesting, he specifically said, don't boil it. God's against boiling meat. God wants you to grill meat, all right? So he said, grill the lamb, cook it up real nice, and they eat every single bit of it. So it was not just to provide their salvation, it was to provide their, 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 their strength, their sustenance, their, their ability to get through the day. It was a sign of God's deliverance, but it was also a meal. After they applied the blood, they ate the lamb. The lamb's blood saved them. The lamb's body provided for them. You know, Jesus is called the lamb of God. But you know what else Jesus is called? He's called the bread of life. He doesn't just save us. He sustains us. He provides for us. He takes care of us. He not only rescues us from our sin, but he sustains us and sends us out to worship and serve him. And that's why Paul in Philippians could say, you know, I can do all things through Christ that gives me strength. You know, Paul, he was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was hungry. He was homeless. He was, he was cast out and hated by everyone. But he was never forsaken by God. He was tormented by Satan, but God sustained him. God gave him strength. And the same God that Paul served is the same God that we serve. No matter how deep the sin, no matter how painful the suffering, God will free you to himself and sustain you to serve him. Now every year after that Passover deliverance, after Israel woke up the next morning and they left and left Egypt, burdened down with the riches of Egypt, every year they would gather together and they would celebrate the Passover. They would remember what God did for them. They would remember how that lamb shed his blood to cover their sins and, and save them from the judgment and the, and the wrath of God. When Jesus, before he died on the cross, he gave us something different to do. He said, instead of the Passover, we're going to do what's called the Lord's Supper. And we do it for the same reason. To remember that Jesus, the perfect, sinless Lamb of God, allowed his body to be broken, allowed his blood to be shed, was killed for us, not to cover our sins, but to take away our sins. But Paul gives us some warnings in 1 Corinthians. He goes, before we observe the Lord's Supper, and there's no power in the Lord's Supper, there's no saving in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is just a time for us to remember 
and thank God for what he did for us. Paul says, take some time and examine yourself. Take some time and make sure that you're on good standing with God. So we're going to take some, a few moments. We're going to pray. You can thank God for the Passover, whatever the Holy Spirit led in your heart this morning. But just take some time and examine your heart and see if there's anything between you and God. Maybe there's something between you and another believer that you need to get right. But make sure that you are on good terms with God before we take time to thank him. Mm-hmm.